Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister in Canadian history, but we're on part two, every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister. If you like, you can support the podcast for $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Wednesday and Saturday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday and looks at Canada during the First World War. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday and looks at the building of the Transcontinental Railway. All are available on all podcast platforms. I also do all of this full-time. The writing, the research, everything. So every dollar you give helps keep it all going. And when you donate or become a patron, you get a bunch of benefits, and I also say thank you directly on the air and through my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, if you enjoy the episode, please consider giving a five-star review. Helps keep me up the rankings, and I'll thank you directly on the air and on my social media. The last episode I looked at Gordon Graydon, the man who was the leader of the opposition, but whom did not lead his actual party. The party leader was another man named John Bracken. Bracken had become leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada in 1942, one year before Richard Hansen left as leader of the opposition, but it would take three years for Bracken to earn a spot in the House of Commons, creating an unusual set of circumstances. Bracken may be remembered for a generally forgotten time as the leader of the opposition, during a time when the party was at a low point as the Liberals had dominated federal politics since 1935 and would continue to do so until 1957. The truth is that he not only had a long career in politics, but he has the distinction of being the longest-serving premier in the history of Manitoba. But we'll get to that. John Bracken was born in Ellisville, Ontario on June 22, 1883 to Ephraim and Alberta Bracken. The Bracken family had come from New York State following the War of 1812, and Bracken was named for the paternal great-grandfather who made that trip. Bracken had been born in a log cabin, but the family would save its money and eventually move to a 240-acre dairy farm where Bracken would grow up. Bracken would speak of those years in his life in 1941, stating, quote, Those years of hard work were more value to me than any other years of my life. I realized the need to work and equip myself for life, end quote. As a young man, Bracken was educated in the same one-room school his father attended before moving to a two-room school closer to the family farm. In the area, he was known for being a determined young man who was a skilled cyclist and athlete. Bracken's mother would also instill in him a strong sense of loyalty and duty. He would say later in his life that his mother was, quote, the greatest woman he ever knew, end quote. At the end of his schooling, Bracken finished fifth out of 40 children, good enough for him to go to the Brockville Collegiate, and during his first term at the school, he did not do well. But after Christmas holidays, he began to improve, and he would eventually leave the school and return home to oversee the dairy operations on the farm. Bracken's cousin would describe him in 1922, stating, quote, Johnny seems to have a faculty for landing on his feet right side up. 
When Johnny was a youngster, he was running on a board across the silo when he struck his head on another he hadn't noticed above him. He fell a good many feet to the bottom, but he didn't hurt himself beyond spraining his wrist. Lucky boy, I'll tell you. End quote. In 1902, Bracken would attend the Ontario Agricultural College in Guelph and earned honours in all of his subjects, while also serving as a star player on the rugby team. In his second year, he won the Governor General's Medal, placing first in the academic standing of his studies. In his final two years, he was chosen by his classmates as the best all-round man, and he would graduate in 1906. At the time, he was considered to be one of the best running halfbacks in the country, and his love of sports would continue throughout his life, eventually going from contact sports to the more relaxed golf. Professor A.H. McClellan, who taught Bracken, would say of him, quote, As a halfback, he was perhaps the best and certainly one of the cleanest sportsmen who ever passed through the college. There have been other good ones, but Bracken was a prince of good fellows, a gentleman, and a powerful player. End quote. Bracken would also be a lifelong Winnipeg Blue Bombers fan, and he would work briefly in Manitoba for the Department of Agriculture, earning $75 a month, before going on to Regina to work for the Stock Breeders Association, where he was making $150 a month. On June 22, 1909, he married Alice Bruce, and the couple would have four sons, John, Alan, William, and George. One year after his marriage, he became the professor of animal husbandry at the University of Saskatchewan, where he would remain for the next decade. After a move to Manitoba to serve as the president of the Manitoba Agricultural College, Bracken began a major survey of the farm conditions of Manitoba, which greatly increased his profile in the province. During this time, he also wrote two books, Crop Production in Western Canada in 1920 and Dry Farming in Western Canada in 1921. Bracken was an expert on agriculture in the province, and he would say, quote, Every 40 million bushels of wheat shipped out of Manitoba takes from her soil plant food constituents that would cost more than 12 million to replace. If we were shipping butter instead of wheat, the valuable fertilizing constituents shipped away would cost less than $40,000 to replace. End quote. Circumstances would soon change Bracken's life. Prior to 1922, Bracken had little interest in politics and had actually been too busy to even vote in the provincial election that year, which, as we'll see, is quite ironic. In 1922, the United Farmers of Manitoba were hoping to make progress after becoming a party in 1920. Expectations were low for the party, and they did not even select a leader going into the election that year. For decades, the Conservatives and Liberals had alternated leadership of the province, and no one expected more from the United Farmers. What happened instead was arguably one of the biggest upsets in Canadian electoral history. The UFM was opposed to partisanship, and the party also endorsed candidates with the Progressive Association. Fielding candidates in only two-thirds of its ridings, United Farmers won 28 of 55 seats, suddenly becoming the ruling party in the province with a majority government. This created a problem since the party didn't have a leader, and as a result there was no premier for the province. Several members of Parliament turned down the offer to lead the party and the province, so the party looked to the man who was making a name for himself in the province, John Bracken. On July 21st, Bracken received a phone call at midnight asking him if he wanted to become Premier. The caller was W.R. Club, a stranger to Bracken and an MLA in the legislature now. Bracken at first refused, 
as he had no interest in politics, but after talking with his wife, he decided that he should at least consider it. The next day, Bracken was in a church basement being interviewed by the new United Farmers Caucus. Bracken had gone from being a relative nobody to the premier of the province in one day. The choice of Bracken was also well received in the province, as he was considered an outsider to the political establishment. Canada's third farmer government was elected in Manitoba on July 18, 1922. Like the Ontario government, it was balanced exactly in numbers with the opposition after appointment of the Speaker. The Honourable Douglas L. Campbell, later Liberal Premier of Manitoba, and the Honourable John Bracken, who headed the 1922 Farmers Government, was later National Leader of the Conservative Party. We had 25 members elected out of a house of 55, which meant that we were lacking a majority, but there were three deferred elections. UFM or Progressive or Farmer, the terms were used interchangeably. The 25 of us gathered here in Winnipeg a couple of days after the election, with the exception of uh, four or five of the elected members in our group. None of us um, had sat in the House before. Uh, very few of us were acquainted with one another. Those who had sat in the House had been just for short periods. So we were a pretty green group, and we faced that other unusual situation that we had no leader. And that's the time that we had to go to work, and we did go to work uh, pretty efficiently, I think, and uh, considered a lot of possibilities, uh, among them the former Premier, Mr. Norris, and several others, Mr. Creer, Mr. Hoey, Mr. Malcolm, who had been Minister of Agriculture, and others, but eventually we decided to ask Mr. Bracken, who was then president of the Agricultural College, to come and lead us. It wasn't a party, it was a group of farmers. They found old conservatives and old liberals, and uh, they found Anglo-Saxons and French and Ukrainians and all other peoples and Roman Catholics and Protestants. And they all respected one another, but they didn't see among themselves any potential leader. For five years, we carried on with the same number of supporters on our side as the opposition had on the other side. Every important measure that we brought in, we had studied thoroughly beforehand, saw the pros and cons of it, and had caucused with all our members. And they had been a party to every important decision. The decision was theirs. On August 8, 1922, he officially became the 11th Premier of Manitoba, a full two months before he was even elected to the legislature. The United Farmers of Manitoba, which would govern as the Progressive Party of Manitoba, along with Bracken, would control provincial politics for the next two decades. As Premier, Bracken was considered conservative and cautious. Rural interests dominated the party, and labor interests did not get a lot of sympathy from his government. He had little in the way of sympathy for the Winnipeg General Strike members from 1919, and he would fire several government workers to show that he was independent from organized labor. He would also make the repayment of the provincial debt a priority, which at the time he came to power was costing the province $3,500 a day in interest payments. In his first speech from the throne, he said that he wanted to work with the opposition and that he disliked the politics of class and self-interest. 
His first speech in the legislature was pretty poor, but considering Bracken had no political experience, that was expected, and he would soon find his footing. Bracken would say later in his life to describe his governing style, quote, I want to know how the low-salaried, unorganized, white-collared worker is getting along. I want to know how the unorganized laborer is faring, end quote. Bracken was never interested in the day-to-day business of politics and he hated handling the party affairs. For him, at least according to an interview with Maclean's in 1941, the joy came in finding he was making a real contribution to the country and to the prairie provinces. That Maclean's article would state, quote, He has a talent, rare among Canadian political leaders, for analyzing problems and presenting them in a way which common folk can understand. He never appeals to emotions or to local loyalties. End quote. Throughout the 1920s, as leader, he would increase taxation, create the provincial income tax, and he would lower spending in health, education, and welfare. His government also created a censorship board to regulate movies, ended the prohibition on alcohol, but mandated that alcohol had to be sold in provincially controlled outlets, and he created a pension plan for all citizens over the age of 70. Bracken put special emphasis on industries such as mining, timber, and fishing, while also putting a heavy focus on hydroelectric power. As part of his focus on industry, he would have the Hudson's Bay Railway create a branch to Flinflon in order to access the new copper and zinc mine located there. He would also influence the decision by his future political rival, William Lyon Mackenzie King, to give the Prairie Provinces control over Crown lands. As part of that, on July 15, 1930, Prime Minister King delivered a settlement check worth $4.7 million to the province, which would be worth $72 million today. In 1929, Bracken's progressives increased their seat count by one, maintaining their majority government. In 1931, as part of his focus on nonpartisanship, his party formed an alliance with the Liberal Party, and the two parties became one. In 1940, a wartime coalition government would be formed that included all the parties. The new Liberal Progressive Party increased their total seats under Bracken to 38, with the opposition members shrinking to only 15. In 1935, when he was angry with the Conservative government of Prime Minister R.B. Bennett, he actively campaigned for the Liberals, calling for lower tariffs and an expansion of export markets. In 1936, Bracken would suffer his first setback on the election stage when his party lost 15 seats, falling to 23, earning a minority government for the first time. The Great Depression played a major part in this, as many were suffering great hardships as the economy was in the middle of tanking through the 1930s. Bracken would form an alliance with the Social Credit Party in order to remain in power. The Royal Visit The King and Queen arrived in Winnipeg one hour ago, and despite a heavy rain for this part of the country, they received a grand welcome. Already they've driven from the station to the City Hall, and just a few minutes ago they arrived here at the Parliament Buildings, where I'm now speaking. They're inside the buildings, having a short rest, and very shortly they'll appear on the canopied balcony just over to our left to hear an address of welcome from Premier Bracken of Manitoba, of Their Majesty's arrival. Dripping scarlet and gold pavilion, They walked on a very damp red carpet that was bordered by great buffalo robes, so emblematic of these prairies. Robes that will soften the chill underfoot of this precious prairie rain. Your Majesty. It's been falling under a sky so full it looks as if it might We did not order this rain for today. 
days to empty. But whenever it rains in Western Canada, we suffer it gladly. And I present to you 100,000 loyal Manitobans who are happy to meet their sovereign even in the rain. You have just heard the national anthem played by the band of a famous Canadian regiment, the Princess Patricia's Regiment of Canadian Light Infantry. We shall continue the program with a welcome chorus to be sung by a mass choir of students from the high schools of Winnipeg, accompanied by the students' orchestra, the choir. By the time that Bracken left provincial politics, the legislature had only five opposition members because of this focus on nonpartisan politics. One of the most amazing facts about this coalition was that it outlasted the Second World War, continuing until 1950. For the next 20 minutes, you will hear the Honorable John Bracken, Premier of Manitoba, who is speaking under the auspices of the Liberal Progressive Party, which engaged the time for this broadcast. Mr. Bracken. Radio Friends, I wish to take a few minutes of your time tonight to do two things. First, to summarize the election situation as it is now after the nominations of a week ago. And second, to set out some aspects of the present campaign which ought not to be overlooked. The present situation may be briefly summarized. As you all know, last Saturday was nomination day. As you also know, next Tuesday will be election day. On nomination day, 16 constituencies avoided the cost of an election and put in their 16 members by acclamation. All 16 were supporters of the government. Of these 16, 10 are liberal progressives, five conservatives, and one independent social creditor. For the 39 seats yet to be filled, there are 73 candidates supporting the government and 18 opposing it. It will be obvious to all and with only 18 candidates running in opposition to the government, the government will be returned with a considerable majority. Of the 18 candidates running in opposition to the government, nine are social creditors, four conservatives, two liberals, and two or three are independents. The nine social creditors should be distinguished from the three other social credit candidates who are members of the last house and who are supporting the government. These nine are opposed to cooperating with the other groups in this time of war, and they are opposed as well to the reforms recommended for Manitoba in the Sirwa report. As all the political groups which agreed to drop partisanship for the period of the war are in favor of the reforms recommended in that report, and as these nine social credit candidates are opposed to these reforms, this branch of the social credit group represents the only substantial group opposing the government. By 1942, Bracken was enough of a major political figure in Canada that the federal level was coming to him. Arthur Meehan, former Prime Minister of Canada, would ask him to take over leadership of the Conservative Party in 1942. And he stated that he would seek leadership of the party, but only if it changed its name to the Progressive Conservative Party. King would write of this in his diary, stating, quote, He owes his long tenure of office to the Liberals, who have supported him, and the progressives. He owes nothing to the Tories. He has made a fool suggestion that the party should be called the Progressive Conservatives. This, after being a leader of the Liberal Progressive Party. End quote. 
Bracken would sum up his decision to have the party name changed, stating, quote, It stands for the preservation of what was best from the world of yesterday and the adoption of what is best in the world of today. End quote. King would suggest in his diary, as well, that Bracken was nothing more than a puppet for Meehan. Bracken did not know if he would actually run for the leadership of the party until the day of the convention. He had told the party to change their name, and party members were hesitant, so he told them if they didn't, he would not be leader. Bracken would tell those close to him, quote, If I'm there for a nomination tonight, you'll know I've decided yes. If I'm not there, it'll mean I've decided no. End quote. At 7.30pm, 30 minutes before the 8pm deadline, Bracken put his name forward. During the convention, Bracken would tell the gathered delegates, quote, If you hadn't adopted that plank, I wouldn't be here. I've touched on one or two of my views. I have others. I just want to say that if you take me, you'll have to take them too. End quote. He would add that he wanted a more progressive party, hence the name that matched his values. And he would tell the crowd, quote, I did not leave my Western home to lead a party whose primary asset would be the incapacity and incompetence of its political opponents. I would like you to understand that the party is being built up not just to win elections, but to serve Canada. Personally, I don't want the Progressive Conservative Party to win elections unless it deserves to win. End quote. In that leadership contest, he did not have any major challengers, with Alexander McPherson, the former Attorney General of Saskatchewan, being the biggest threat to his leadership bid. King was in fact so sure that McPherson would win that he drafted a telegram to send to him upon his victory. John Diefenbaker would also challenge, but most felt he had little chance of becoming leader. In fact, he would have to wait another decade and a half for that to happen. On the first ballot, Bracken would take first place with 420 votes, with McPherson and Diefenbaker taking 222 and 120. On the second ballot, with the endorsement of Howard Green, who had dropped out in the first ballot when he finished with 88 votes, Bracken cruised to victory with 538. Several of Diefenbaker's supporters went to the side of McPherson in order to stop Bracken from winning, but this failed. It is now almost exactly 12 months since I was invited by a convention in Winnipeg to accept the leadership of a national party. Before that convention assembled, there had been a searching of hearts among those who wished the Conservative Party to resume its place as a great constructive force in the national life. In the councils of the party, younger minds and more vigorous opinions had triumphed over considerations of party expedience and the promptings of mere heft. The resolutions adopted in Winnipeg gave proof that the party had been reborn, was filled with a spirit of service, and driven by a lofty purpose. It gave evidence of its new faith and determination by indicating in its name, progressive conservative, the basic principles for which it stood, the preservation of what was best in the world of yesterday, and the adoption of what is best in the world of today. For the next three years, Bracken would serve as the leader of the Progressive Conservatives, but despite the custom of running in a by-election in a safe riding after another MP stepped down, Bracken chose not to run in the House of Commons until after the 1945 election. In his diary, King would refer to Bracken as the absentee leader. 
King had a friendship with Bracken from his time as premier, but for the rest of his life, King would feel that Bracken was truly a liberal who had betrayed the party. Unlike four previous conservative leaders, King did not send a telegram to congratulate Bracken, instead drafting a message to the press stating he would wait until Bracken was in the house to reserve judgment. King would write, quote, I shall write him privately saying I was surprised at his running at all, and equally at his appointment, but will refer to the friendship of past years and express pleasure in the thought that we will be able to work together in the House of Commons in a manner which will maintain the best tradition of British parliamentary government. End quote. So why didn't Bracken take a seat? There are several reasons for this that were put forward. The first was that he wanted to tour the country to meet with party members and become familiar with regional concerns. He also wanted to address supportive audiences, and he may have also worried that with Meehan taking on the leadership and losing in a by-election, the same would happen to him. This would have been unlikely as King openly disliked Meehan and put resources into the Cooperative Federation opponent to ensure Meehan lost in the by-election. King would write on January 17, 1944, that Bracken not coming into the House would only help the Liberals. He would write, quote, I think our chances have greatly improved by Bracken's failing to come into the House. End quote. Even though he was the leader of a major political party, Bracken still worked two farms, one in Manitoba and one in Saskatchewan, and when reporters would find him, he often had dirt under his fingernails, grease on his jeans, and fertilizer plaster on his boots. Bracken would create the People's Charter for the party, which would outline the principles of the party. Some of these included that every man had a right to a job, that farmers had a right to a fair share of the nation's income, the right of every child and youth for equal opportunity for health, the right of every citizen to security against loss of income, and the right of future generations to a world of plenty and of peace. Most analysts felt that Bracken would make a good Prime Minister, but was a poor opposition leader, Blair Fraser for Maclean's would write on May 1, 1944, quote, His qualities are those of a prime minister rather than those of an opposition leader. He hasn't the temperament for opposition. His instinct is to cooperate. It is no accident that he was the first Canadian premier in this war to form a wartime coalition government. His preferred technique has been teamwork, consultation, unity. A slow and careful speaker who likes to have a text when he has pondered for days and which every word has been weighted. He has neither talent nor liking for the fast, petty thrust and parry of Parliament today. End quote. Bracken, during his travels around the country, covered thousands of kilometers but only made about a half a dozen speeches. That being said, his unreported private talks with Canadians ran in the hundreds. That same Maclean's article would state, quote, for better or worse, Bracken is carrying the ball. Whether or not he can carry it across the goal line, we'll know in a few months now. End quote. In the 1945 election, the Progressive Conservatives finished with 67 seats, an increase of 29, but not near enough to topple Mackenzie King in his last election, when his party finished with 118 seats. In that election, Bracken ran in the Nipawa riding, defeating his Liberal opponent who had represented the riding for the past 10 years. The party was likely hurt by the promise that Bracken made to have conscription for the invasion of Japan. King had instead promised one division of volunteers to take part in the invasion, which was expected to be a years-long bloody campaign. The public was not keen on this idea. 
And as it would turn out, Japan would be defeated only two months after the federal election thanks to the atomic bombs dropped by the United States, something Bracken would not have known about, but King likely would have. Another major issue was the fact that Bracken did not go into the House of Commons for three years, greatly limiting his appeal. He also had a halting form of speech which many did not like, especially when hearing it on the radio. In Bracken's first speech in the House of Commons on September 10, 1945, he would speak for an hour on the beautification of the capital. King would write, quote, His address, as written out in full and read in the form of an essay, end quote. When Bracken had his first vote in the House of Commons, which supported the Liberal Party, he received an ovation from the members of the House except for the Cooperative Federation. Now in the House of Commons, Bracken quickly found that his party was more divided than ever before. Bracken was unable to lead the party in the same manner that he led Manitoba, due to being a Western populist, and he was distrusted by the Eastern establishment of the party. His hold on being leader was even in danger as early as 1944, with several of the senior members of the party wanting him out. In 1943, George Drew became Premier of Ontario, and many in the party began to look to him as a possible leader. For Bracken, his days were numbered. During this period, Bracken's health was strained as his party pushed him to attack the government, which was something he was hesitant to do. He was hard-working, but he lacked the temperament for the often cutthroat environment of the House of Commons. On July 17, 1948, Bracken was pushed out of the party leadership and forced to resign, opening the door for George Drew, the man who would lead the party for nearly a decade. King would write in his diary after the resignation, quote, Bracken's life as a leader has really been a tragedy. He should never have left Manitoba, was never fit for leadership in Ottawa, has been a failure in every way, end quote. King had no animosity towards Bracken, but simply felt that he had made the wrong decision. He would send a telegram of sympathy to Bracken upon hearing that he had resigned. And King, who was also leaving his party after leading it since 1919, theorized on why Bracken was leaving and compared it to his own leaving, writing, quote, Bracken is leaving because his party has no chance under his leadership. Were I to decide to stay on, I think there is little doubt that we would again, as I believe we would in any event, win the next election. I'm not getting out either from fear or defeat or any dissatisfaction of my party. End quote. Unfortunately for Bracken, his riding would merge with Brandon's riding before the 1949 election. In the 1949 election, he would be easily defeated by Liberal James Matthews, who picked up 4,000 votes in the riding he had held since 1938. As it turned out, Matthews would die only a year later. And in that 1940 election, Drew and his progressive conservatives would actually lose seats, falling by 24 to 41. While the Liberals under the new leader of Louis Saint Laurent earned the largest majority in Canadian history to that point with 191 seats. Following the end of his political career, Bracken would serve as the chair of a royal commission on the liquor laws in Manitoba, and in 1959 he was the chairman of the Boxcar Commission, which would investigate the distribution of railway cars. Bracken would also be inducted into the Manitoba Agricultural Hall of Fame. He then retired and spent his time in Ontario raising cows, ponies, and horses. And by all accounts, the last two decades of his life were happy years, as he stayed out of the public eye, spending his days with his wife and his livestock. Bracken would die on March 18, 1969.
1998, Canada Post released a stamp in his likeness, and in 2016, a portion of the Highway 10 in Manitoba was renamed the John Bracken Highway. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at John Bracken, the leader of the opposition. If you did, please consider giving a rating and review. Next week, I'll talk about George Drew, the man who led the opposition from the 1940s up until the point a man named John Diefenbaker came along. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurieann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information from Manitoba Historical Society, Canadian Stamp News, Canadian Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, Biography, Library and Archives Canada, Dynasty and Interludes, and Maclean's. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.